My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis for all morality. Something cannot emerge from nothing, he said. This is profound thinking if you understand how unstable the truth can be. Hello and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is season seven, episode five, Fear's Path, covering book two, Ma'adib, chapters one to six. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book and this series. My name is Dan. I have read up to this part and I have recently watched most of the movie. My name is Talia. I've read all of the Dune books by Frank Herbert and I'm rereading this book along with the podcast. I've also seen the miniseries a long time ago and the most recent film that Dan has seen 95% of. My name is Priya and I have read up to this part in the book and I have also watched the recent film. This is Amin and I have read up to the current point in the book and then I have also watched the recent movie and a long time ago I watched the David Lynch version as well. All right. Well, just to follow up a bit on what I was saying about the movie. So I did only watch about 95% of it because when I watched it, I realized I didn't, I hadn't read, I started seeing stuff that I hadn't read yet. So I went back and started reading more and then I went back and forth and watched some of the movie, read read more because uh, I hadn't finished the section yet. By the time I finished this section, I never got back to watching the movie. So I missed like the last like five minutes, but they, it seemed like they were wrapping up, but like I couldn't tell. So were you on I, a plane, Dan? How are you I was able a, to toggle back and forth? I was on a plane, yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, so I had like a long plane ride over over the holidays here, and um, yeah. So, I, so I, that's another problem. I watched the I watched the uh, the movie on like the really terrible movie screen on the on the plane. I probably should watch it with, like with like better sound and like better visuals with like a a real screen because it seemed like the the visuals were like a big part of it, right? Totally. We when we got when we got our surround sound um, installed in our house, that's the first movie that we put on to like test the surround sound and see how well it works. So, <laughs> so it's definitely a movie you want to watch with like all the sound effects and all. It's it's very good, and not an engine droning in the background. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Dan, the version that you did see, what did you what did you think of it? Oh yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I wasn't blown away, I guess. Like, people seem to be really blown away by it. Like, maybe, and I think Talia you mentioned well, you this before. You never saw like, the attempts to film it before. So, you yeah. <laughs> I think you mentioned this before, but, like, I think you get more out of reading it because you get their, like, internal dialogue. I, I didn't. Yeah, I had definitely mentioned that, especially because, yeah. like, Paul just comes across as, like, super emo in the movie. And then when you read the book, you're like, oh, there's more to this kid than just, like, he just wants to look all rugged and brooding and emo. So, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't I wasn't the biggest fan of of the, the actor who plays Paul. He was okay, mm-hmm. but like I wasn't. That's I don't know. Timothy Chalamet. I know. <laughs> uh, heresy, maybe, but <laughs> the like the guy I, I, who plays Paul, the guy who plays Paul, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say uh, he was probably quite a get for the studio, and he does convincingly play fifteen. So. What Let's else see. has he? What else has he been in? Oh, don't he, even start. <laughs> um, <laughs> is he like a Twilight person or something? Uh, no, he, he, no, no, no. he got famous for "Call Me by Your Name." Call Me by Call Your me. Name, and also yeah. that coming of age movie. Wasn't coming of uh, com- the coming of age movie uh, "Call Me by Your Name"? That was also no, a coming of age. No, the slightly more heterosexual one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I can I just say, like, he was in a movie that uh, it's kind of. Wait, what did you say? Ladybird. 
ah, Lady Bird. I refuse to watch that because I don't know. It just didn't rub me the right way. <laughs> People but, like Greta uh, Gerwig. They like Timothy Chalamet. But go on before we get too <laughs> off topic. Let's <laughs> close this. Oh no, I was just gonna say he was in. Um, he was in a movie called The King, which I feel is like really underrated. And that was like really good. It's based off of the the Shakespeare play, um, the one on King. Which King? King, Henry, King, Lear, King, King Richard? No, no, no. King Henry the Fourth, I think. Fourth part two. King Henry the Fifth. King Henry the Fourth part one. There's a lot of kings in Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, I know. the 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 play that's just based off of King Henry is the one. <laughs> My brain is all muddled right now. Okay, but it's, he's really good in it. But um, you did like the movie Dune, <laughs> mostly. Yes, I did. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I think we had some actual follow-up about the actual book. So I will hand it off to uh, Talia. Uh, yeah, so Priya had noticed or wondered if Kynes was a Fremen. And yeah, this section does answer that question in a couple different ways. Uh, the way that I saw it most obviously was when a Fremen does use the word Liet when talking to Kynes, revealing once and for all his... From an alter ego. Any other follow-up that we want to talk about before we get into the characters in summary? All right. Well, we'll just jump into the characters then. So we have not that many new characters. Uh, it seemed like mostly returning characters that we've seen. And like actually, like this whole section didn't have many different points of view. Um, but there are a couple of new ones. Uh, we have Count Raban of Lincolnville, a brutal <laughs> Arkanen, and elder brother to Fayed Ruida. Oh, man. I screwed that up. Fayed Rautha. Fade Rotha. And he also believes that the fragment of Arrakis are undercounted and underestimated. Uh, Stabin Tuik, who is a, the son of Esmer Tuik. And I, I don't know what he actually was. He's not, he's not a Fremen. He's kind of against the Fremen, right? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think there's, he's a smuggler. That's the most we know. I, I think he had a big, long conversation, but uh, I don't think we know too much about him. Uh, and then we have Drisk who is uh, Tuvik's uh, quartermaster. And so we'll have Talia go over the summary of this part. Sure. Like you said, Dan, not too many new characters, but let's see how they interact. So Jessica and Paul, having escaped with a Frem kit, secret themselves away in the desert. Duncan's ornithopter piloting is spotted by Paul, and he's able to secret them away to a safety house where they all meet with kinds. Paul then correctly identifies the purpose of the CH as ecological restoration and offers himself to Kynes as an ally, an exchange of aid for support of his plan when Paul eventually rises to power. His path to power, he believes, is to offer himself to the emperor in marriage to one of his daughters, saying, from the throne, I could make a paradise of Arrakis with the wave of a hand. This is the coin I offer for your support. Uh, right as the loyalty is exchanged, Sardaukar attack, and Duncan sacrifices his life for them. Paul and Jessica once again escape into the de desert storm on a stolen thopter. In another hiding place under fire from the Harkonnen fo forces, Hawat escapes, only to learn the value of bargaining with water, and joins tribes with the Fremen. They valiantly fight, and the Fremen dispatch Sardaukar easily, but eventually are overwhelmed and Hawat falls unconscious. The Baron, as ever disappointed in his staff, uh, questions the orderlies who tell him that Paul and Jessica are dead, and hunts for a replacement to Peter, his twisted mentat killed during Leto's assassination. His eye falls on Hawat, and he encourages the belief that Jessica is the betrayer. 
He has handpicked Fade Ratha to rule and calls up his older brother, Raban, to give him control of Arrakis and indenture him in servitude. The Baron advises Raban to lie to the remains of the Harkonnen forces, brutalize the Fremen, and extract steep taxes from the five million inhabitants of Arrakis. Paul and Jessica make their way across the desert, pulling a few Bene Gesserit tricks from up their sleeves to survive the low oxygen environments. And Gurney Halleck is still alive and working with smugglers. And it's strongly implied that Gurney has his own personal score to settle with Raban Harkonnen. This section ends with Gurney singing a dirge as another Atreides man dies. Okay. Um, do we want to just get into general impressions of this section? I had one. Rest yeah. in peace, Duncan Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, that was like one point in the movie that was like way more dramatic of his death. Like it, it was like just like a paragraph <laughs> in the, in the, the you book You had to here. go back as well? I was like, wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, the, I, I, when I, because I read it one time, uh, like when we, after we recorded last time, and then I watched the movie, or I mostly watched the movie, and then I read it again. And I was like, when I read, read it again, I was like, man, they really didn't like dwell on it. Because like in the, in the movie, they kept the great, he had like the, the visions of him like dying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's none of that in this one. Like it's just like, oh, he, he just it's, died. <laughs> he probably died. Uh, it's because he's Jason Momoa in the movie, and in the book, he is not. So. <laughs> Right. We need to see a lot of flashbacks and flash forwards of Jason's right. chest. They, they got to um, get all the other money's worth, you know, as much screen time as possible, you know. <laughs> no, there is definitely like a moment where Paul like seems to double back or like look towards the door and then realizes the futility in that. But that's really as much lingering, I think, as, as we get. But I love Duncan. So my first yeah, I mean, of the chapter was RIP. That's all. Yeah, I mean, like, given the the relationship in the movie, I'm surprised, like, there, there wasn't more of a, like, he, even in the beginning of the book, right? Like, he seemed to have, like, sort of a rapport with him. But he was also always kind of away, too. You know, like, when they, they first got to Arrakis, like, Duncan mm-hmm. Idaho, like, went away. Um, so he's just been gone for a while and, like, on a mission or whatever. But it's it seemed like Paul, I don't, I don't know, in the movie, he seemed to have more of a relationship, like, more of, like, a, like, he looks up to him more, right? But in the book, there was a two, but maybe it's just Paul's like new mental state of like, he's the leader now. And right. Cool. He's under- got this whole cool calculated, I mean, yeah. he doesn't even cry for his dad. So maybe that's just part of his, his aura right now. Yeah. I mean, just people underneath you know, and it, uh, under his, his ruler is going to die. And like Duncan Einhoff just has, and that's how to- the chapter ends too, with Gurney yeah. singing this song to a dying man. And what's going through his head is like, well, down to 73. Right. But I mean, Gurney seemed to be a lot more, like considering it a lot more right like just the fact that like you know th- that whole section was like maybe the most interesting part of this this section oh, maybe like with, with with gurney uh talking to the to the fremen about like um how they need to like uh ha- the the water crisis and they need to like uh think about like their their water and like how they're gonna deal with it and like the fact that like they have to like trade the guy to, oh you're uh, confusing gurney with Hall- with uh, oh Hall- sorry Yes. Sorry, how it, how it. I'm like the most interesting part was the last part where Gurney works with the smugglers. I just stuck that in the summary to remind everyone that Gurney was oh. still alive. That was also um, interesting. That was also interesting. But that was interesting. yeah, yeah. I, I do confuse Howitt and, and Gurney all the time. I, 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 I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see why. Because they kind of fill the same kind of role, I feel. So yeah, yeah. they'll branch out. Too. They'll branch we'll, out. They'll branch out. Okay, they'll they'll diversify. Okay. <laughs> to your point, I also really liked, you know, when this bargaining is happening with the Fremen, and I think Priya brought up this, like, thing about Mentats and their weaknesses, and it was sort of funny to see that, like, this super-skilled 
computer awareness is very clearly missing the point when mm. they're talking about water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't get it. <laughs> over and over and over. Right. Yeah. So it's it's very, very ironic, I feel like, based off of the way that that entire conversation goes afterwards, because that chapter begins with Hawat saying, I've always prided myself on seeing things the way that they truly are. That's the curse of being a mentat. You can't stop analyzing your data. But then the way that everything unfolds after that, it seems like he doesn't have a very strong grasp of truth or what's actually going on. And um, like he and this Fremen are on different wavelengths the entire time because he's trying to figure out what to do with their sick and dying. And the Fremen is just like, basically kind of like the vibe I got from him is like, this is not my problem because this is a water problem. They don't have enough water. So right. <laughs> yeah. And he kind of just can't grasp, like wrap his head around like the conversation that's happening from the other end versus from his side. Well, as this disembodied voice said at the head of the episode, you know, how unstable the truth is. Maybe how what <laughs> is seeing the truth and the truth is an unstable thing. Right. <laughs> Right. And of course, like he is going to be kind of um, used sort of as an object in that same um, in that same manner, because uh, later on, we're going to see that the Baron um, wants to kind of hone the skill that is, I guess, as we can see, underdeveloped in Hawat at this point. And it, it, it just seems like he's going to be used for nefarious purposes basically and he's going to sort of be manipulated by the baron so it, in order to become a better mentat which is kind of ironic in its own way so it's really fascinating how uh this sort of plan we see for Hawat unfolding kind of relates back to that quote as well because because the the truth can be unstable and it can also be destabilizing and it can be made to be unstable so um, we see all of those uh, the seeds, seeds, uh, seeds that relate to that thought being planted in this section. I mean, what did you think of this section? The same. I, I thought it was. I thought it was really interesting how the Fremen valued water more than life, almost. Um, and they had a line. I'm not going to get it right, but it was. It was something about how um, a, a, a man's a man's body is his own, but water belongs to the tribe and how they look at that as greater good. Yeah. Um, I thought that was, I thought uh, until now I didn't have a lot of opinion about the Fremen, but I think they're startling, starting to finally develop them as well. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, the, that, that, that part was, it was pretty interesting. And um, also in that section, I think that's when, um, when the Fremen like talk about like fighting the Harkonnen and like, and, uh, and how it, and he's, and he's like so surprised. <laughs> like they're like, they're, they're saying like, they're pretty good fighters. This is a funny section. They're yeah. like, yes, we killed like a hundred Sardaukar. And I was like, what? Like how? <laughs> like, this right. Is, like this is such a jokester heavy episode. Did anyone else <laughs> see that? Yeah, <laughs> I did. And honestly, it kind of reminded me of, uh, this is kind of like a stretch, but uh, did this did this remind any or if I say it, it might remind you of this. Uh, the way that um, that guy talks to Arya in Game of Thrones. What's his name? Um, uh, Jack and Hagar. Jack and Hagar. Yeah. 
the Fremen kind of talks like Jack and Hagar, I felt. <laughs> yeah, kind of, of uh, <laughs> sort of in riddles and uh, just like getting to the heart of the matter, e- even if it's in a sort of uh, cryptic way versus like the, the like Hawat is kind of uh, talking in his mind more out of a sense of logic, whereas the Fremen is sort of like focusing on the crux of the matter, it seems. Yeah. I just yeah, thought, like, yeah, go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, like, throughout the whole chapter, like, he keeps saying, like, you know, how, you know, how he keeps in, in, insinuating how easy it is to beat the Sardaukar, like, you know, for, for the Fremen. Like, mm-hmm. he's not saying that, but, like, it, it seems like it's really easy for them to beat it. And then, like, at, at the end of it, he gets, you know, killed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like a, he gets his throat slit. After this whole, like, walk in the park attitude. Right. Yeah, I had to reread. I had to reread that line because I was like, in one fell swoop, this yes. guy who was like talking of a big game just like gets right. knocked out. And then right. Yeah. It was like, it was like, hun- mean, it just... it was like hundreds of Sardaukar coming over the hill or something, right? And like, yeah. And all of a sudden, he just gets killed. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Because it's not like, so easy. The Baron has this <laughs> this scheme. He's like, I have a hand picked Fade Routha. He's going to be beloved. He's so lovely. He goes on the soliloquy about this lovely 17 year old boy calls in his like giant older brother who I guess is not supposed to notice that he's being set up as a patsy. Like, of course he's going to be hated. He's there to like extract high taxes, beat up everyone, <laughs> like be hated in the populace and to show no mercy. And this putz is just like, sounds good to me. Like I'll go out and lie to the troops tomorrow. So like <laughs> the Baron seems like he's having a great, a convoluted time, I should say. Yeah. And it's not creepy at all the number of times he says he's a lovely boy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, a, the homoeroticism a, of the 1960s carries on. <laughs> but also, like, Jessica and Paul, I put this in my stray observations at the end, but I can hop into them now. Like, is he taking over from Gurney? He's in the desert, fighting for their lives. He said, I lost the pack. It's buried under 100 tons of sand, at least. Everything, it's fair water, the still town, everything that counts. I still have the paracompass, he fumbled at the waist stash, knife and binoculars. We can get a good look around the place where we'll die. Yeah. Like, what a jokester-heavy episode. Yeah. It's lighthearted. 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 In the gallows humor. Yeah, I think the ba- the Baron section was also maybe my second favorite part of it. Like the Bar- I mean, mm-hmm. like, the Baron's just an like, interesting character, I think. Um, he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of plotting and scheming. I, I also love the part where he's like, you must always be hungry and thirsty. And then he gestures to his like body to illustrate that. that <laughs> what do you think? Do you think he was playing mind games by taking all the chairs out of the room? Or do you think that was a uh, paranoia? Pull the room. Oh, I didn't even catch it. <laughs> he like, there's this whole bit about the Baron's body and how massive he is. Yeah. And he like uses suspensors and he brings in Raban who he describes as like there's rigidity underneath his fat, but he can tell like you're eating yourself into needing these suspensors soon. This like obese, basically like teen. And Raban looks around for a place to sit and is thinking like the old man has removed all the suspensor chairs. It's (laughs) confirmed that he actually has, but it's not. I choose to believe it. Yeah, I didn't even catch that. I, I, I thought the Baron part was interesting too, and uh, this might be jumping ahead, but I also thought it was it was good to not exactly contrast it with the way Paul 
looks at things, but really it's, it's, it showed how people in power, they would do all sorts of things to keep power or to get what they want. Um, it, it was, I don't know, it, it was just interesting that, that Paul, who's supposed to be the protagonist about this, is he also places lives at risk in order to get what he wants, whereas the Baron is doing the same thing. I mean, the Baron's obviously more extreme, but I think that is, um, I thought that was, that was the most interesting part about this Baron part for me is how it, it kind of showed the parallels with the way Paul is also leading. It's quite well, Paul's also uh, Harkonnen, yeah. right? So, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there were some of those like reveals that we didn't really have too much time to spend on in this section, like the fact that they're Harkonnens and the fact that Jessica is pregnant. They're both like winked at, but not really delved into in this section. But it's a good thing to keep in your mind. I also find it interesting that the the section on the Baron, since we're talking about that, uh, starts with a quote from the um, Princess Irulan that says, uh, and it's a very short one, kind of cryptic, what do you despise? By this, you are truly known. And it precedes the chapter with the Baron. So it's definitely trying to make a commentary on uh, what we see uh of these two characters, probably mostly the Baron in, in this section. I don't know what you guys made out of that. Were you thinking about that as you were reading that section? I wasn't. <laughs> I, I I don't like in the, the front matter quotes, like I don't like, I don't know. I, I, I kind of skim over them sometimes. <laughs> like, I don't know, like I'm supposed to like get out of them. Oh, I like them. They yeah. remind me of like proverbs, but I definitely agreed with Amin. Cause when I first wrote about Raban, I was saying, um, like Paul, he believes the Fremen have been underestimated and undercounted, but unlike Paul, he's willing to kill them. And I had to backspace and be like, actually, like, it's really not that simple, a foil of like antagonist, protagonist, like, both of them are really willing to go to different extrema to acquire, maintain and project power. And it's really too early to say what either of them will or will not do more similar. And I think you'll see the same in Fade Routha, more in the next section. I know we've talked about Fade Routha a little bit, but we haven't actually seen his character, but mm. more expressly a foil to Paul Atreides, I would say. I think like one of the the, the, the front quotes that I did like was like the very first one where they, because they kind of start with it with like the, like from the perspective of the emperor um, being, like that's the only perspective we've had from the emperor so far. So that was, that was pretty interesting and how he's so mad about um like what happened. But so hopefully we get more perspective from, from that. I don't know if we will, but don't tell me. <laughs> we kind of jumped all around. <laughs> so if you guys want to just pick up the some of the, the points you guys had and just jump to it, maybe uh, Tali, you go first. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, I did see the quote that the Baron says to his nephew. Um, two things from Arrakis then. Raban income and a merciless fist. And I did wonder if income was actually the most important thing for the Baron, or if actually he was just as invested in both projecting his power and making this cannon fodder hated. Like he's saying it's very expensive, but the entire mission must have been exorbitantly expensive uh, to like drop down these 2000 frigates. So I got the sense that the Harkonnen purse was not really hurting after this invasion. How about you? 
I got the impression though it it did it did like it pretty much cost them everything that they had, right? Like, cause oh, okay. I don't know. That that's the impression I got anyway. No, hot take. Like, I love it. I love being wrong. I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But it's just like because, like, yeah, like like you said, like he his his whole plan is like, hey, you should extract all the money you can out of the out of this planet. Uh, you know, levy taxes and and you know just income, 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 right? That's that was the most important thing because mm-hmm. he spent all this money on on taking back the taking back Arrakis from from the Archidius family. That, that I was also I saw him like the Baron said, like, "Oh, go just go tell the rem- remains of the troops that you were like commanded by the Padishah Emperor." Like that's stretching the truth at best. Yeah, yeah. The Emperor I mean, is sort of content to look the other way, but he definitely has not ask the Harkonnens, much less this rube to go conquer Arrakis. Well, I mean, his, his, he constantly like shifts blame to other people, right? That's <laughs> like, you never want to take the blame on himself. It's yeah. always like, Oh, make, you know, we should, we should kill this person and make it look like an accident. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's right. When he, right. he's like, it's kind of dangerous to kill an Imperial servant. And right. he's like, well, how do you Hines, think I got yeah. so far? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. He wants to kill a kind and like make it look like an accident. He like, Maybe he wants to he wants to maybe kill Howitt, maybe if he doesn't agree, if he doesn't um if he doesn't go along with him, right? Mm. Um, I didn't think about that, but probably. I mean, because he's he he said that he's gonna like poison him, right? And he's gonna like he's gonna like poison I him, but that but, was so, for control, not for death. Oh, I thought it was like more like in case it in case he doesn't agree with me, like I need to like be able to kill him, right? Because he's gonna like poison him, but put the antidote in there, and then eventually like they take away the antidote if if they need to. Uh, so not just the threat, but being willing to care, willing to carry out the threat, right? Without without suspicion on him, right? Like without mm-hmm. suspicion on him, uh, because they they don't want people to know that he's. Like, it seems like he he didn't want the the emperor to know or the Sardaukar to know that he killed the duke. Right, he may want to mm-hmm. may want to look like an accident, and so same with uh, Howitt, and same with like all his plans, right? Like everything is like an accident, or he didn't do it, or you know someone else did it, or the emperor commanded it, those kind of things. It, it does make me wonder how dumb exactly does he think that the emperor is, or is the emperor <laughs> actually not very bright? Because, like, oh, this guy died accident, this guy died accident, the duke died accident. Like everyone in the way of the baron just accidentally slips on peels and dies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how much uh he is expecting this emperor to suspend disbelief for him. <laughs> Does the emperor have a lot more planets that he needs to think about? Like how important is Arrakis <laughs> <he> to die? <laughs> you know, like you know, maybe he has like, you know, a hundred planets he needs to deal with and like a hundred barons he needs to deal with and like you know, some people he die. Does, in this, but there's on, only on Arrakis. one Arrakis. There's only one spice right. planet, Dan. Yeah. But also, I mean, if we pay attention to Princess Irulan's um, openings, she said that her father was very, very upset when he found out that the Duke was the dead. Duke. Yeah, yeah right. Also, because yeah. it reflects on him, though, because it's loyalty. I mean, not loyalty. It's royalty, rather being carefully assassinated which you know if you're the head of the fish starts to look like a threat on you it gets a little weird though because then she's like he even accused me of being a witch and causing (laughs) causing the duke's death so i was like okay well she's like benny jesuit right isn't that implied like they're called uh, i i can't remember now if i had uh gathered that (laughs) is she benny jesuit well they're they're called princess we haven't, even, we haven't even seen her yet, right? Or have we? 
No, you haven't no. seen her. Unless you think witch is like woman in total control of herself. I think witch is just how they call the Benny Chesbrits. Interesting. Yeah, I, I just not knowing if she was Benny Jesuit, I didn't draw that uh, comparison, but I guess that makes sense now. Um, what but we know also, about the emperor is he has only daughters, and Irulan talks about her father, so she's at least a daughter of the emperor, and that's all we know for sure, for sure. Okay. Um, all right, so that that kind of tracks. But also his suspicion of her versus suspicion of the Baron, like that's kind of like... A stretch like <laughs> come on <laughs> i mean yeah maybe it's just like he just suspects all like all benny yeah the, i think yeah, they're an know. easy target for fear and suspicion because like look at what happened in this section she literally like put herself into a medically induced coma just right. at will that's a dangerous person to tussle with yeah yeah so should we talk more about the the paul and jessica scenes of them uh traveling the desert and um, taking the, you know, riding the storm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting. And the, the worm stuff is always good. You know, when the, the worms show up, that's always, that's always pretty cool. Um, the, I, I liked how, was it Paul, I think, who like staggered his steps, like to make them irregular. So like they would, the worms didn't realize that it's, it's him. Yeah. And it reminded me of like an earlier, earlier scene where I think it was Mapes who said it or someone who like someone who's a Fremen who, who, look, who uh, recognizes in Paul or maybe it was Kynes uh, that uh, part of the prophecy says that he will, um, he will know their ways as if he were one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, we really see that kind of playing out in how resourceful Paul is in the desert. It doesn't just seem like training. It seems like there is some intuition there that's like kind of just flowing out of him while he's in the desert. He just seems to automatically know what to do. Um, and you can tell when it's his Benny Jesuit training because he like, you know, he he knows to like calm himself down and think logically that's coming from the Benny Jesuit. But just like knowing the ways of the desert and what to do and what not to do seems to be coming from like altogether like just intuition so that was kind of fascinating to see yeah that was my i totally agree with you because i think uh, one thing that stood out to me is that he'd been in the previous chapters he'd been trained or you know taught to handle a lot of the political stuff about political intrigue and how to be how to be a political leader but mm -hmm. it was interesting that somehow all of that translated into a completely new situation as well. So I thought that was, uh, I don't know, I, I took it to be something supernatural, but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not that complicated. I'm sure he's just a smart guy. Well, it's really giving credence to the prophecy, right? All this yeah. um, mm -hmm. pro prophecy-minded thinking around Paul and like this, I guess, this sort of messiah complex that's building in him so i think that it just kind of uh draws attention to that constantly these these moments in the book i think it's definitely a lot more than him just being smart it, there's definitely something more going on than him just kind of intuiting um like how to survive in the desert like you know in the earlier chapters he like knew how to put the the still suit on with, you know, in the still suit yeah yeah and then this one he, he already knows how to like deal with the worms and everything and so he hasn't been on arrakis that long to to kind of he pick that up study, but he has his prescience and he has this you know he keeps yeah when um howard is concerned about 
Paul and Jessica, I, I do appreciate how straightforward the Fremen is in that moment when how it's asked, using this very like grandiose poetic language, like, do you know of their fate? The Fremen's like, well, everyone has the same fate. The Duke has already met his fate. And right. <laughs> if Paul is actually the Lisa al Gaib, then nothing here can touch him. So like, he's completely unconcerned. It's like, well, if he's immortal, if he's the you know, Messiah, then he's fine. And right. if not, then it's not a mystery. <laughs> right. And right. also, like, if not, then kind of like, who cares, right? <laughs> what happens? <laughs> yeah, yeah right. it's not my problem. Not my problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a waste of water if he, uh, he dies. Just a waste <laughs> of water. Look at you. You're so Fremen already, Dan. <laughs> I did like in the movie how they, uh, the Fremen were, were portrayed, like how they like came out of the sand, you know, uh, and they like, they like it seemed like they like went underneath the sand and like they uh, they came up and like they started attacking people. That's pretty cool. And I did like how the um, they uh, total aside <laughs> how they uh, portrayed the uh, the ornithopters. Like that's not what I thought of them at all. Like when I was reading it, but now it's like oh, that's really cool. Cool. I just saw them as helicopters before. <laughs> They're ornithopters. Yeah, I didn't think of it as like big mechanical bugs. They're pretty funky looking in the movie, if I recall correctly. Yeah, there's like like dragonflies. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Like that's not what I pictured when I when I was reading it. <laughs> maybe maybe I should have. In his dark materials, I can't remember exactly what they're called. I think they're just called the same thopters. Mm. And I know that they're like omnithopters, maybe. Supposed to be some improvement on the helicopter. So Talia mentioned uh Paul's uh pres- prescience uh earlier. Um and uh, there's another, uh, there's a quote about that that kind of stood out to me. Um, this was when he's having, uh, he meets um, Duncan Idaho when his, his first encounter with him and when Duncan calls him sire. I think that's when he has this, uh, this, this, this thought come to him. Uh, he felt himself touched briefly by his powers of prescience, seeing himself infected by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe towards chaos. I thought that was really interesting because on the one hand, he sort of commands that he be called Sire when he's later talking to Kynes. Or maybe it was in that scene where he had this. It was. Uh, it was. <laughs> Damn it. I like corrected myself when I was wrong, when I was right the first time. Okay. Anyway, so when he's talking to Kynes, he has this moment and it just made me think about how like people who are royalty and um, at sort of at the the top of the hierarchy, it's sort of like necessitated by having to maintain order, but also at the same time, he sees that it's hurtling the human universe towards chaos. So like the commentary on hierarchies there was very interesting to me how like there being a hierarchy and um, people kind of having this sense of royalty or someone being above them and calling them sire is sort of just a form of race consciousness. That term just felt very interesting to me. I don't know what you guys made out of that. Yeah, I think his his kind of struggling to, um, yeah, coming into royalty was. I think during that section, like when he was like thinking about that, he also had like a glimpse of the future again, right? Like the same glimpse that he had, mm-hmm. um, uh, previous in like the in the previous section. So I don't know. It seems like he's going through like some really big change, um, to uh, that 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 and all this stuff is really affecting him. You know, like the his his rise to power, his his uh, learning about his. Uh, 
is an omnipresence. <laughs> right. But I, I just, I, f- I feel like it, prescience was also an interesting word in this context because it's like, that's foreknowledge. And it's like, he feels like this, these dynamics between people and groups of people is that, does he have this, this idea that this is going to be the undoing of, of humanity in a sense, or like that we are, we are doomed because we have these systems in place where, you know, some people are above other people and some people are, you know, looked down upon or, you know, uh, it's also, we, we see this with, uh, in earlier scenes with water as well. And the overarching theme of the book being water and how some people can just use water in a thought, thoughtless and careless way. Um, Mm. as we see, um, in the when the duke is alive and in that uh banquet scene where uh water can just be like carelessly thrown on the floor and then there are people who live uh in the desert where every drop of water means something and is like precious and just these differences between people are just like really called into called to our attention in in a moment like this i feel if we're talking about the importance of water my final comment was bat messengers. <laughs> that little drop of saliva to the bat to carry a message. Genius. Yeah. That was amazing. That bat was messengers. like... <laughs> I had forgotten crazy. that completely. It was kind of cartoonish almost. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That's why I thought this entire section was grim, but also very funny. Also because the bat has like the same blue eyes as the people. Right. So it's, it's like true. a oh, yeah. it's very, very tiny character bat. I just thought like like a like a cartoon bat with like big giant like googly blue eyes. <laughs> and then the bat like lifts its head up. I don't to think the bat's the gonna slide. make it in the movie, so it's safe to <laughs> to think about the kind of bat it would be. You can imagine to your heart's content. I don't think the bat's gonna make it. I didn't like, totally. I didn't totally get how he, they made the tunnel back down to get the the still the. the yeah, tap. there were a couple of things. I think we just sort of need to look the other way. Like, oh, there's these like glow in the dark arrows that will point you towards this stolen ornithopter. But don't worry, the arrows will disappear as soon as you walk over them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when they got the pack, he's like he's buried under tons of sand, right? And then you're like a hundred oh, tons. I, yeah, hundred hundreds of tons of sand, and then like. And then he, he just used a compass and put some like water or something to like build a tunnel. I don't know. I didn't, yeah. I didn't really get it. <laughs> maybe maybe it will all come out when we rewatch the film. But yes. Was that, in the movie? that was that, that maybe that's in the last five minutes in the movie that I didn't see. But like, I don't remember that part at all. <laughs> I, I think the last part, the last part I watched was um, when they're in the, the storm. That's, that's the last thing I remember. And you started seeing things that you hadn't read. Yeah, yeah, and then I went back and and read and finished, and I never went back and finished the movie. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe by next episode, you'll give us a full recap. Yeah, I'm sure. The last the, five minutes the list- changed everything. Listeners are fascinated by my weird spoiler aversion. <laughs> oh, here, okay. So this is another. <laughs> this is another total aside. That has nothing to do with anything. Um, no. But you know, like to talk contemporaneously about things that are happening in technology right now, chat GPT is like a, a thing, right? People are talking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And so like I went and went to, <laughs> I went to chat GPT and like said, 
um, tell me a story that combines three body problem and Dune. And so it started, it started doing it. Ooh. And I was like, wait a minute, this is going to tell me some spoilers. And I stopped reading. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. I just need GPT to like look up limericks about the raccoon to send to Priya. So you use it for such literary pursuits. But like the, the, the one thing I did read that was pretty funny. It was like, oh yeah, the Trisolarians are losing their planets. So they're going to come to Arrakis to get Ooh. the spice. <laughs> I can't wait to see the factions that spring up from that. Right. <laughs> so like those who don't know, as in listeners who don't know <laughs> about what just happened to me will have no idea why Talia just brought up a raccoon like out of nowhere <laughs> but it's not like, a video podcast that's right I, I am sitting next to a lovely glass door and I look to my left and it's dark outside and there was a ginormous <laughs> raccoon sauntering past and I didn't expect it so I freaked out a little bit <laughs> But off camera and off mic, so yeah. you kept your cool. We're professionals yeah. here. Thank, thank God for the mute button. <laughs> okay, well, anything else you want to talk about for this section? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, like, since we were talking about like jokes and jokey bits, I also found it very um, fun that like throughout this entire section, Jessica is kind of just like following Paul's lead pretty much, and then like after that scene where she gets buried under the sand, he like pulls her out, but he's like freaking out a little bit, just a little bit. I feel like he did pretty good regardless. She just kind of like chides him so much like a mom. She's just like, well, you kind of freaked out. I need to, I I need to train you more. Like I need to make you better at this. Yeah. Time to do your times tables, you know? Right. She's like, (laughs) I need, and something about his hands. She's like, I need, we'll start with like the finger joints and like the hands and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He just dug you out of the sand. He just dug the whole like pack out of the sand too. And he knew what to do. But she's like, no. First place, tiger mom's coming back out. Seriously. (laughs) Like it reminds me of like, you know, um, you know, growing up, with an Indian mom like it's like you come home with like a 99 it's like where's the remaining one point what happens <laughs> extra credit if you come home with a hundred so that's totally like Jessica in this scene that's quite observant thank you for those of us who Paul, did not grow up with an Indian mom didn't Paul also like think about like at, during, during when she was doing that like you know how he's like royalty what wasn't there like some thought in his head about that like oh she's like addressing me this way even though like I'm I'm royalty like but I don't know. I, I, I seem to remember. That she noticed that she was really stiff with him. Like yeah. when she was saying, like, oh, your sister won't be born for many months still. She's like noticing how how like formal she is. Yeah, yeah. That might be it. And but then she did she did kind of um expand that that thought experiment <laughs> to like say that it's because he's she's kind of scared of him now because he's so like serious now he's like turned from like a boy into a man basically like kind of overnight before like you know unexpectedly because like they did not anticipate for the death of his father in such circumstances so it's like paul literally had to grow up overnight and assume this role that and now she's their relationship has changed as a result because he went from being like her son her little boy to like being the duke and being the one kind of in charge so that and i i did interpret that scene where she's like we need to like work on your training more as sort of like reasserting herself as mom right like i'm still mom you're still my kid i still need to there's still much for you to learn you're not like all wise and like you know all the way where you need to be at yet 
do you think she's worried that maybe like he's gonna like lose the Benny Jesuit side and like that's why she wants to continue the training and like because like he's like already has all these other responsibilities and like maybe he's gonna like kind of lose those abilities and like uh, and she wants him to continue in in her way. Yeah, I think that that's probably a fair assumption or a fair interpretation because like the, the as we were talking earlier there's like some aspects of his um his intuition and his capabilities that comes from the Benny Jesuit training but then there's a whole lot that he's relying on that's coming just from intuition and this mm-hmm. might be her way of like kind of inserting herself and saying like you can't rely solely on intuition it may not always be successful. So you also need to kind of always have that Benny Jesuit training as well to supplement in a sense. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you very much for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes and reading lists and all the other stuff we put up there. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. Please join us next episode for season seven, episode six, covering book two, Ma'adib, chapter seven to 11 of Dune by Frank Herbert.